Hello again. Welcome back to Country Roads Confidential here at earsports.com, part of the 24-7 network. Hey, happy new year to you. Back for 2020 after a catalog of episodes in 2019. I think we ended on the bang with some marathon recording sessions about all decade teams and how we pick offense and why Chuck Bryant was actually good. Topics like that. I hope we can keep going in 2020. But to make that happen, I have to welcome back in Chris Anderson. Chris, uh, Happy New Year. How are things different for you in the year 2020? Uh, I've been outsparted by my children, which I guess oh. isn't that new. Um, everything in my house is breaking, which is only new since I started talking to you on here. So thanks for that. Um, house warming stink from you. Um, but other than that, feeling good about 2020. I always... That time, that Christmas break is always good for me. I, I feel like that's a time where we we kind of pre-record, as you mentioned, pre, pre-record and I pre-write some things. And I go down to Alabama uh, to visit family and completely unwind. No internet, uh, no nothing. And, you know, horses, cattle, dogs, mm. river, farm. It, it's nice. I enjoy it. We do it for several days and then kind of come back and get back into the swing of things. So it, it's I feel refreshed. I like this format that you and I have because, again, you and I hardly ever see each other, and, and the majority of our interaction is through texts. Um, we, we do talk on the phone, but I also write so much that I like to give my fingers a break, but I also have a lot of opinions, and I think very highly of myself, so talking is good. But I, I am with you cramming in all that stuff at the end of the year like we did, but also letting it roll um, – I think people enjoyed it. We can get to that in a second, but also kind of being off of it for a while. Um, it made me like reassess things. And I'm not going to lie to you. If I didn't work here, I would probably not be on Twitter. I think I'm going to spend a lot of time on buffer and just pre-program a lot of my tweets and my social media stuff, because <laughs> it was really cool being away from things. Like I forgot about things that I'm constantly reminded of when I'm online. And just today having to go through some things and research stuff, I found myself having to search tweets, or whatever. And like, I started twitching and, well, one eye was blinking and it started to sweat a little bit more than I was used to. And I was like, nope, didn't miss that at all. Let's go back to our end of the decade stuff. Um, I got a lot of feedback from this. Mostly like some of the stuff was was generally complimentary. Like that was cool. I like that. Didn't agree with it, but good idea. The one about our first year of Brown seemed to have the most follow-up questions. And I kind of figured that would be the case. But no one liked our football and basketball teams universally. And I think we kind of figured there would be some either or picks. But it seemed like fundamentally I was broken in some of my decisions. Well, I think I noticed I didn't get as many uh, hate tweets as you, but I, I was scouring the Facebook page when I got back into town and, right. and seeing some of the comments under that were similar. And it was, oh, how did you not include Deshaun Butler? I was like, well, we covered that in the podcast, talking about how he played, I believe, 15 games in, two, in the 2010s. So does that really count? Can we really count him? Of course, I would take Deshaun Butler over, say, you, you know, Chuck Bryant for my starting five. But Chuck right. Bryant played four years and started four years in the 2010s. Not that. So there was a lot of a lot of that, um, I think. And I think some people forget when guys graduated. I mean, I know that's hard to do when you got a lot of guys rotating in and out over the years. But, um, yeah, there were not a lot of people. Basketball, I felt like – you and I almost universally agreed on basketball. Like we were what we have 12 of the same 13 or 11 of the same 13. And that was the one that uh, at least according to the Facebook comments, which we all know you should never check the Facebook comments, but we got roasted in that one. Oh God. I haven't looked at that. Do I have to go look at that? (laughs) No, I would not suggest it. Yeah. um, A lot of John Flowers fans, which, I, again, I think he can make a case for, but across a four-year career in a decade, I'm not sure that he was in my top 13 for that reason right there. Um, a lot of anti-Truck Bryan sentiment, who, and not not only like that, but just picked apart his career, uh, and then which we went over too, but I think in the long run, you can't overlook the number of wins and tournament teams he was on, never mind the stats there too. And then in football, there were a couple too that I kind of went back and forth on, but the Darwin Cook one, I was surprised by the the blowback on that one. That was one I wrestled with. You said you weren't even worried about it. He was definitely in there, and I had a hard time. It didn't feel great about it. And and then I guess like the defensive or the offensive equivalent was Russell Shell, 
Um, I'm gonna get back. I'm gonna get back into a, a, um, a regret that I have in a second here. But do you have any takebacks? I can't think of anything I would do differently. I went back and I revisited and I'm like, ah, can I put that guy in? I feel pretty good about my 22 and my 13. No, I. I mean, I might have moved a couple guys around. I would have adjusted things differently for the basketball team because I remember you. You went one, two, three, four, like ranking them one through 13, and I. I tried to make a starting five, a complete backup five, all you know switched up on positions and then three guys that could play a few minutes a game kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I would have made, might've made it tweaked it a little bit um, uh, for it. Oh God. Who was it that I, I forgot? You, I did have one regret for basketball. Uh, Lamont West. No, I, yeah, I did see those comments about how we didn't even make mention of, of the Turk, but uh, Lamont West, you made me think yep. about it before I ever even got off the air. Um, that maybe I kind of pushed him aside because he left and, and or it, it, and you look at his stats and it, we're talking about how you got to get a couple years in, you got to put up some stats, you got to be doing something. And, and he was pretty good at some things. I think the, he was somebody I might've considered putting on my 13 had I looked at him a little more beforehand. Have you kept up with any of the guys who left the team? From last year? No. Right. Would you like to? Sure. Uh, Lamont West is averaging 10.1 points per game, and he's shooting 38% from three. Hasn't missed a free throw this year for Missouri State. Uh, Beetle Bolden is eight and a half points, shooting 40.5% from three. Um, I think that West Virginia would have loved to have those numbers this year if those guys were plugged in. I'm not sure that I'm not sure that they can have those numbers on this team, but um, two big parts of that team last year, or you figure should have been big parts of that team last year. Um, doing okay in new surroundings there, but I don't think anybody's going to cry for them because things are going pretty good here. And this is where another thing I'm going to have to talk about my regrets, uh, because no one does rankings and top 10 lists or things like that. It's a completely unique concept to our website. Um, <laughs> I was Driven home Saturday from the game. I have a driver, of course. So from Cleveland, I was in the back seat all the way to Morgantown. I was thinking, wow, what did we just watch? What did we just witness? Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, West Virginia beats number two team in the country. Um, great win against Ohio State. Competitive game. All the stuff that you've been thinking about for the past several days. Nothing has changed and, and since then. But I did wonder, hmm, you know, how good of a game was this? And I tried to figure out where it was in the, the I don't know, Top 10, let's say this. So I tried to rank it. I think I had it as the third best win of the Huggins era, and I'm already regretting this um, because of recency and things like that. And I kind of waffle between three and four. I just think if you beat number two um, in a non-conference game early in the season um, in a neutral site, it's different than beating a ranked team in conference play because you'll see them year in and year out, and you get used to things. The scouting report's a little bit easier. Uh, you know what the venue is like, even if it's a road game. I just I, th I put a lot of weight into that, and I think Ohio State's a really good team with a high ceiling. And – the significance of this for West Virginia of really putting that last season on the shelf, you know, getting it out of there for good now and saying, no, 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 we really mean it. We are good and we're back. It's quite an exclamation point. I'm wondering if it should be number three because of all the people who've convinced me otherwise and how many games I left out. But maybe you don't want to put a number next to it, but how good of a game and how good of a moment was that for Bob Huggins? I'm with you on this. Uh, cause I, I was looking at it and that was the first thing that jumped out when I was going through your, your list, your top 10 was, mm -hmm. Oh man, Mike got hit by recency bias yeah. at number three. But the more I, th like the more I think about it, as far as for hug, like if you're looking at it from a program's point of view, just West Virginia during the Bob Huggins era, maybe I don't have a number three, but as far as the, what the win means and how I would look at and evaluate Bob Huggins as a coach and what he's done, it might be just because of all the obstacles that they also faced. You talked about it being non-conference, uh, quote-unquote neutral site. Uh, that was really more of a Ohio State game. I think most reports have been maybe 70-30, 60-40. Uh, Ohio State, you were there. Was that? Yeah, it was It was pretty close to 50-50, and if it wasn't, oh, was if it, it? was 60-40, it sounded a lot more like 50-50. I don't doubt there were more Ohio State fans there. Just visibly, there were a ton of red shirts, and I don't think it was people from Morgantown wearing red coats. Um, it, there were more Ohio State fans there, but it was not it was not one sided. And even if there were more, the West Virginia fans were louder and more engaged 
play to play throughout the game. Well, looking at that, it, not not a home friendly environment. We'll put it that no, way, no. neutral at best. But facing all the foul trouble, coming off a year as bad as it was last year, and then just doing that and and pulling away towards the end there in the last minute or so, I think speaks a lot to what Huggins has done. So if you're putting it on like his resume, say you know, show me a bunch of games that Bob Huggins would say submit to the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. for. Uh, from his time at West Virginia, I might put it up there in the top three. So if you're looking at it from that angle, I don't think you're that wrong. Not in that, but look at everything they went through in the game, too, without Sheboy, with Culver being frustrated, um, didn't get the points of the shots they thought they would get from McNeil and, and Sherman, which maybe isn't a shock, but um, that was kind of what said. I mean, they went through an awful lot. Also, it's the earliest in the season that a game on my list had been. Everything else is in January or in March. Most of the games are in March, which, again, your biggest games are going to be in postseason environments. I get that. But um, the ones I thought about, I don't think it, I don't think any of these overdo it or, or jump over it. Um, the Texas Tech game last year in the tournament, that was cool because that team had played pretty well late in the season, but didn't really go anywhere with it. Lost the next day. And, you know, again, I get it, but you get into tournament settings, things are different. I'm not sure how much of a significant win that was. I really do regret, however, um, not getting one of the two Virginia wins in because that really did jumpstart those two teams, one on the road, one at home. I think the one on the road was probably in the formative stages of that team, what it would become. That was an important one. And I did kind of overlook the number two game or the game against number two Pitt in the 2009 tournament, except I think that they lost the next game. They only lasted one game in the tournament that year in the NCAA tournament. So what did it really mean? But um, Pitt was dynamite that year and West Virginia played their game and beat them. So um. I actually think that maybe one or two of those should get into my top 10, but I look at it in some of these games, and this is part of Huggins being as good as he is as for as long as he's been, man, they've had some great games in his 13 seasons here. Yeah. I was looking at one of the first things I thought of was that uh, the Kansas game from a couple years back with the snow and everything and everybody's having a hard time getting there. I think you had it number four or five, somewhere in there. Um, And, then I, I was, but the, when I was thinking of that, I was trying to remember which year that was because, oh yeah, there was that other time that they beat Kansas, and <laughs> then another time, and then what about that? And and just like you said, all of a sudden you're like, oh man, there, this isn't one where you're kind of your, you know, your ninth or tenth pick are, you're stretching to get to that top ten because you really only have a top eight. This is, uh, you got a top twenty and you're trying to narrow it down to a top ten. People did not like me putting in the win against Baylor uh, three years ago in there. Because just because it was a blowout, well, not that, but I think West Virginia was number ten at the time, um, yeah. and it was not new to beating number one teams. I just think when you when you blow the doors off a number one team in the country at home, it's a great moment for your program and your team. I don't know that can be overlooked, but I think that's one that maybe you would think about. But and I think I had that eight, and underneath that are the win against Villanova and the twenty ten season, and then number ten for me was oh. Um, the win against Marquette, which is Huggins' first win against a ranked team, but that was a really good Marquette team. It was kind of the arrival of this this program under Huggins, and you know things are going to be okay. Um, that was just a good win for them too. But uh, I do wonder now um, how we look at this Ohio State game um, in the moment. Let's say let's not worry about history, but um, this does validate things, and it does. I don't know, fix is a weird word, but maybe he does have the right players in the right spots and the players are doing their job to make sure that what happened last year and what happened a couple of years ago and they missed the tournament and were embarrassed and postseason games doesn't happen again anytime soon. But it does set them up going forward. Um, we've been talking about formations and personnel combinations and all that stuff throughout the season and how it looks and how it works and whatever. Uh, those conversations have led us to this point. Um, do you see anything that took shape and that gives them firm footing going forward there because I really wonder about that. I'm not sure they can repeat that game or they want to repeat that game many times, but there's a number of performances in there that are certainly promising. I think uh, Chase Harler and Sean McNeil both put up an argument for that number eight spot that ah. you and I had were going after and in a good way, like as in neither of them, like both of them I thought were very good and, and Huggins talked about it after the game McNeil's been kind of stroking it lately. Uh, Harler, uh, you got a couple, you got a story on it, and, and we talked about it before. He was very solid in this game. He did some good things well. He hit a couple big shots. He made a couple big plays. He didn't look 
because there have been at times this year and in past year where he just doesn't look like he belongs out there. Mm-hmm. And that was not the case, I didn't think, against Ohio State, which is saying something when Ohio State's ranked number two in the country. Yeah, they're running curls for him in the paint. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. And, like, one of them worked, and one of them, he shouldn't have been passed the ball. And I think it went for a turnover for him, unfortunately, but it was a bad pass. But uh, I did talk to someone who was watching West Virginia before and after this game, and um, we were talking about the bench and the depth and how, you know, they don't win that game without the depth, but maybe they don't use that depth without the foul trouble and just how a strange array of circumstances it was. And, again, how you probably wouldn't repeat that script too often, at least not on purpose. And we got to talking about you know, how much difference – Sherman and Harler and McNeil can make. And we started talking about Harler and McNeil and how they're similar players, whatever. And I was told, nope, not similar. Um, that Harler, Harler does more when he does and doesn't have the ball. And McNeil's, McNeil's a bigger threat when he's open and he can get streaky. But Harler just Harler can find things to do um, that even if you heard Huggins talk about it after the game, like you don't identify and understand as they're happening. And um, I think when you watch McNeil, sometimes you wonder, like, if he's not open, what can he do offensively? And he does get that mid-range sometimes, but those shots seem to go for him when he is making the perimeter shots and he can chop big guys and step in. Harler, I don't think McNeil's inept by any means, but it's an interesting point that Harler can do different things on different ends there. And I don't know, that whole 8-9 thing, do we have to have that conversation again? Hopefully not, because... <laughs> well, I, I I would like to have a conversation about it, but a slightly tweaked from just McNeil versus Harler, because I'd like to put something else in here. And it's tough for me to say it. Think I know where you're going, McCabe. No, is that what? Did you know where you thought I was going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just making I'm sure. I'm ready. To um, so again, he starts. He only plays nine minutes. Um, I think what was it like? Only like five or six minutes until the end there, and he was basically brought in. Uh, to hit free throws, which he did. Four of four down the stretch really helped seal things down. And that is his third game of the year with single-digit minutes. Um, He was kind of an afterthought. I I hardly remember him even being in the game when he was until he made those free throws. Is he – if because if we were to make our eight-man rotation right now, Mm -hmm. I would honestly have to wonder if he would be – my eighth or if he would be my ninth and I squeeze Harler and McNeil onto that team or is it just one of these situations where he's just not fitting or 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 McBride is just playing so well that it's hard to keep him and you still need him there McBride's better yes that's the big thing he's better I mean um he was not this may be recency too um he made some jumpers and he made some threes in that game he was on a rough patch McBride um, from the perimeter and shooting. Um, so we'll see. Was this an aberration or was this the beginning of something? I don't know. But along the same line, McKay's been a bad shooter all year, and he has to do that. He's not going to get into the paint. He's not going to create his shot um, unless it's at the end of the clock and he has to do something, and that's not going to be by design. So he's going to have to hit shots, and he's not a good open shooter. He's not a good contested shooter right now. Say this in football a lot, and I think you have to apply the same thing to basketball. You know, we can ask coaches questions and we can look at numbers and stat sheets, and that's fine and all, but like just use your eyes. And you can tell he's not making shots. He's not staying between his defense, uh, the ball and the basket. Um, he complicates things sometimes with over dribbling or a trickier pass than he needs to do. And you hear those things once or twice, and you say, ah, it's the third game of the season, it's the fifth game of the season. 12 games in now, and you're at the time of the the, the season where you really got to figure out who you can trust and who you can't. Um, we had this conversation way back. Who's the starting point guard for Big 12 play? Very curious to see that. Um, and again, it may just be that thing where you keep the five in, in place, and it's certainly not broke right now. But if if, not, if McBride started, I wouldn't be shocked. I think that he's going to continue to get the minutes and play more and play better. But um, I don't think you can trust McBride to continue to play like that the rest of the year. They've got to have McCabe. I can't knock him out of that top eight because he's your second-best ball handler right now in the backcourt. I'm not sure you would have Haley, I guess, would be your backup, too. I'm not sure you can have him run the offense and do stuff because then you lose him in other areas. And he's not a shooter either. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I can't. I don't think I would, but I'll tell you what. If, if you would put me on the spot to make my eight now, I would have had – it would have been the three of those guys, Harler, McNeil, and McCabe trying to find out which of two of those three instead of, cause I, 
I never even thought twice about McCabe not being in my eight-man rotation the first couple times we did this for the exact reasons you said. But the more we go along, the more I'm thinking, well, why not? But we'll see because he, he does things well. He does things not well. Um, and he – I mean, it. we're not even a full year away from him What having – couple of the best point guard games in West Virginia history. Uh, he was asked to do a lot. He had to do a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, what was it? The, the, the double, triple overtime game at, at home in February. TCU, TCU thanks. It was you know, 25, 10, and 5 or something, something similar to that. And I think he's capable of that, doing that a few times a year. So I, I'd hate to kind of completely discard him. But there's a world in my mind where you can go McBride and Haley as your backup or or whatnot. I mean, I know you don't have to. You can always keep McKay, but if we were doing an eight-man rotation, that is. But, um, man, three of 25 from three for McKay yeah. this season. Yeah, 12%. Oof. What's well, Haley shooting from three? Probably about that too, right? I think so. Let me pull it up real quick, but... Let me fill the silence here because I think this is an interesting point. Um, McCabe, I think, is mature enough and, and smart enough to understand that the team needs him and and the teammates need him. Um, I think if you go around that room and you quiz everybody quietly, they'll tell you that he is the best teammate out there. Um, on a team with a bunch of good teammates, it looks like. But, you know, he leads those 630 morning shoot-arounds, the breakfast club stuff. You know, he's always talking to people when they come back to the bench. I think guys generally like him. Um, I don't think that's fake at all. I think that he's he's really trying to be consistent with that sincerity. But if he can handle this role, couldn't he handle coming off the bench? And maybe he gets a spark coming in and hitting the three or two threes, or whatever, and he gets going like that. I just I just don't know. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and that's good for you. Um, and sometimes you, you mess around with it, too, and you get yourself in trouble, too. I'm kind of fascinated by that, too. But what did you find? Jermaine Haley, two of six on the year. Oh, 33%. Yeah, technically 33%. But uh, what would we say? He would not qualify, uh, meet the minimum requirements. So this conversation Um, is interesting to me because um, at the beginning of the year, there were like five potential point guards, right? You definitely had McCabe and McBride. Haley could. Sherman could. Yeah. We haven't talked at all about Napper, who everybody has told me has lit it up in practice the past Eh, four or five weeks um, just hasn't translated to games. I kind of feel like if they can get one guy to make a leap to a level above and not like, oh, man, can you imagine Culver making a leap? One of those guys who's not quite on the level right now, McNeil, Sherman, Harler, whatever, I think relative to potential and where they're at right now, if they can get Napper to really give him good minutes of point guard and not turn the ball over and to make those shots, um, that's a pretty potentially gifted offensive player if he gets hot and if they can trust him for minutes. And that's one guy that he could solve some problems that maybe at two different backcourt spots. Yeah, I really liked him coming out of high school. I thought he fit well. Uh, I would like to see his three-point shot start hitting because I believe he is 5 of 24, 5 of 22, something in that range. So, uh, again, that's a problem. That's a problem everybody's having right now. Uh, I think, what was it, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that the team was shooting 31% from three, mm-hmm. and it was one of the lowest in recent memory. Still there, 31.9 for as a team at the moment. So, When do we start the Gabe Osaboyan fan club meetings? I don't know. You're, you're going to start running out of uh, time with all these fan clubs you got to run. But an eighth, an eighth day of the week. He is uh, he's the real deal. And I mentioned it on the board and, and on Twitter after – during and after the game that kudos to the compliance staff that because I'd heard that his, his uh, initial uh, waiver to play was rejected and they put in an appeal with new information or not new information, but uh, you know, more evidence and and more of an argument and won on, on a second attempt. And they put in a lot of effort to get this guy cleared and they don't win that game without him. No. Not even close, I don't think, because he did everything 
he he is the guy that can fill that role as that kind of as a three, but also as a four when you need him. Uh, with Culver and and Shibway kind of going into a lot of foul trouble in that game, especially. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24/7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm not sure you want to play in 31 minutes of taking seven shots <laughs> quite that often but again um i think when you're looking for a guy who's got to fill that role he he can do that i mean he's the seven shots I'm okay with because they were playing so far off and that he had to do something. You couldn't let them play um, basically five on four and let them get away with that in a game where you kind of thought points would be at a premium. If he makes, you know, two or three of those, everything changes. But I thought taking the seven shots was at least forward thinking that like, all right, I'm going to do something. If you give me a shot, I'm going to take it. And I don't know. You figure he's not going to be a 14% shooter, but um, even if he shot like 30% on those, it might've been a different game too. But I thought it was good. And like just exactly what you need out of him in those spots. And, He's a pretty good post defender, too, and I wonder how much time he'll get against Azubuke Saturday because I watched him try to get around Wesson. He wasn't strong enough to, to chest to back Wesson and play him. He tried, but a couple of times in key spots, he got around him and poked the ball free, including a big steal late. Um, that's what it's going to take. If you can keep the ball out of Azubuke's hands, you can win. Let's talk about that game Saturday. Um, I'm fascinated by this because it's been the worst, worst, worst venue for West Virginia in myriad ways, blowouts. Um, come from a head losses, the 35 to two game. I mean, pretty much everything that can happen there except a win has happened. It almost feels like this is being set up for a team that's riding high to get completely leveled and sent back down to earth and then stumble out of um, IGA on Saturday, uh, Monday, right? I'm sorry. Monday, Monday yeah. Which was a tricky game. Um, but heck, what do we know about this team? It doesn't seem like they're deterred too often. They don't really turtle up in the shell and run away from anybody. So <laughs> if not now, when? And why not now? O of 7 at Allen Fieldhouse yeah. for West Virginia. That's brutal. Um, I'm interested to say, I, you mentioned they get brought back down to earth. That could be bad, like a a, a thumping from Kansas uh, with or without the help of the refs could be a little bit of a, a, a painful for the ego. Uh, and that would make that game that you mentioned, the Oklahoma State game, that much more important for West Virginia. But I think if they can keep it close, I, I, th- I don't think, by all means, I think they can win this game. I Don't oh, get yeah. me wrong. But I think it's important not to get blown out. Don't play not to lose. But if they get thumped, then, then that could be something that could carry over to a few games. I know when I did my predictions – before the season, I had West Virginia 11 and one at this point, just like they are. And then I had them getting crushed by Kansas and it carrying over and them losing the next couple games and, and sitting at 11 and four. So I think it's important that they are at the very least competitive in this game. 
I would be surprised if they got boat raced. I just think they play too hard and they match up really well. Um, I worry about guys in stripes taking not advantages away, but equalizers away. Like, if, I mean, if Osaboyan has 3,000 in the first half, they're in trouble um, because they're going to need bodies to run it um, at their bigs. Um, they're going to play two big guys, too. So it's going to be a big game. And I don't think points are going to be very high. And probably the team that makes more threes will win. But man, if you've this, this, this is not like some type of. Of, of admiration society for Allen Fieldhouse, but if you've never been there, it's really hard to explain. Um, that's like the one gym that I really think just fans swing games that, that I consistently go to, and, and every year it happens where it's not over, and you almost feel like you start down like six to eight, six nothing to eight to nothing, or something like that. Where if they get off to it, even a moderately hot start, you got to call a timeout because you can't let it get away because the next thing you know, it's twenty-two, and you're out of it because um, you're not coming back there. And it's one of those places, too, where when the shot goes up, you, you just know it's in. <laughs> like, when there's a big shot, they're not going to miss it. And that's been the weird thing about covering and watching and, and being at those games at West Virginia for the years is that they don't miss the big shots or the big plays, the big free throws. And anytime there's a 50-50 whistle or a 50-50 call or whatever, it goes the home team's way. And, like, I don't know how you prepare your players for that where you can keep them tucked in because you know, there are some young guys who've never been there. They could be discouraged. There are some – uh, volatile players who could be frustrated and just may not be able to stay tucked in and just the first or second bat thing that goes their way, maybe they're lost for the game. I mean, this has happened to really good players to the years, Carter and Miles and Devin Williams and guys who've gone there um, and you think are really tough guys and then you just see bad things happen you can't believe it. Um, and that's what I want to see here. I don't know who's going to win or lose. I definitely think there would be way stranger things happening in the 2020 season than West Virginia winning at Allen Fieldhouse. Um, but any number of strange things could happen on Saturday. I was looking at their two losses, Kansas's two losses so far this year. Um, turnovers, big yeah. thing. I think those are the only two games where they lost the turnover battle are the only two games that they actually lost on the scoreboard, at least as I'm going through right now. And, you know, obviously against Duke, that was the first game of the year. I mean, I remember they turned it over, I felt like, every other possession for almost an entire half there. And then against Villanova, Villanova didn't turn him over much. Kansas only turned it over 12 times, but Villanova did not turn it over. They only did it nine times. So I think that would be concerning to me for West Virginia because I think that's a weakness for this Kansas team. But I think West Virginia obviously also turns it over a bunch and, and may not be able to take advantage of that. Kansas actually has a bit of a bench this year. They've played – nine guys sometimes remember those sometimes there's like six or seven guys and that's why i was surprised that the whole pressing thing never beat kansas it got close but like i always thought they were going to wear them down eventually they they play you know four guys off the bench for about 10 minutes a game that's interesting too but assist turnover ratio point guard play sometimes is tough for them but you know they got dotson who plays a lot of minutes he's about 35 minutes a game and you know he's a pretty good point guard and he got inside and gave west virginia trouble in the tournament last year um but that's really like their only pure point guard and if you can Man, if you can stay in front of him, you can keep him from kicking or keep him from – they do a lot of stuff for um, – you know, a lot of lobs and a lot of toss-ins where Azubuke or McCormick, you know, they push their guy up high in the post and they throw it over the top and it's an easy catch and score or it's a dunk or something like that. Um, we haven't even mentioned uh, DeSousa too. I forgot about him. He's still back there. So, I mean, they're going to be big. It's going to be an interesting game. But, man, on the ball defense and making sure that – you know, you got a hand in the face in the shot because – uh, Agby and there's the transfer from Iowa Moss, right? Moss, yeah, Isaiah Moss. Good shooters, and again, I mean, they just got the pieces to do something here too. Not surprising that they've already risen up to number one. I had a Silvio D'Souza joke in there, but I'm just gonna hold off for now. I'll save it for another day. Sit out this episode, but bring it back <laughs> the next episode. How's that? That sounds good. Hey, real quick before we go, uh, football stuff. We've we've kind of um turn the egg timer over on that because it's on pause for a while. And I seem to remember that we were talking about how weird this month away from home could be for basketball because, man, you know, if, if football deflates and it did and then the basketball team doesn't do well, then, boy, what a grim month it's going to be. Quite the opposite. Basketball's held their end of the deal. But uh, post-recruiting buzz, anything happening after signing day that's got your attention or should have other people's attention because they do have some work to do with, but they don't have a whole lot of options. Yeah, I think, you know, 
Nothing much has changed as far as who they're targeting for a couple spots, like running back. LaDamian Webb still remains the top target junior college player from Jones County in Mississippi. Uh, he's likely to visit. problem is he's trying to get all his visits in before signing day. There's only three weekends left. Uh, and I think he has four visits to go. He might have three, but there's a lot of teams that are trying to get him. Florida State has already secured one of those spots. Uh, he was at Oklahoma State before the break. And they're obviously pitching to him that uh, Hubbard might leave. I don't think we know that yet. Ole Miss he's been to. Missouri's trying to get him on campus. It's going to be a tough one. And then there's a very Sparrow high schooler from Florida who had a huge senior season, kind of burst onto the scene late, ran for over 2,000 yards. He got a late offer from West Virginia. He is likely to visit this month. Um, but I think, you know, it's there's going to be more names that come up. They always do. Uh, I think at this point last year, I'm trying to remember my full list, but I talked about guys that were added after Neil Brown arrived that first week of January in 2019. A year ago this week, uh, Neil Brown arrived. After that point, Jordan Jefferson, um, Josh Groudon, George Campbell, Austin Kendall, Jared Dagey, Sean Ryan. Uh, It's a who's who of guys that not only contributed but started this year. Uh, for part of the season or all of the season. Noah Guzman, uh, John Hughes, the offensive lineman, all of these guys were added either in January or later. So I am fully expecting there to be some new names popping up in the next couple of weeks once the coaches get back to it, because that's something else that's changed in recent years is that this used to be a week. I mean, the coaches used to, right now is the All-American game, the U.S. Army All-American game down in Texas. And the coaches used to sit in the hotel waiting for the kids after the, the uh, game was over because they were allowed to talk to them at that point. Uh, it was, it was no longer a dead period. Now the NCAA extended the dead period. It's for a full month. So they, they, I think everybody kind of agrees, Hey, let's all take a break and we'll get back to it. That second week of January, third week of January after the coaches convention, once things settle down a bit. So there will be new names. They will come out. We will have them. And then we'll turn our focus to the spring and the transfer period because new names will pop up from there too. And and guys will just randomly show up on campus like like Sean Ryan did, like George Campbell did. Third year of the signing period, the early signing period, um, yep. 88.6 of commits actually signed. 76% of the entire 2020 class signed. So you're talking 23.2% of all the recruits in the country are still available and 100% of the schools are looking for help. Yeah, it's, I, I don't like to give advice to recruits, but I would say if I were coaching somebody who might be better, I would have told them to hold off uh, from signing in December and, and wait because everybody reshuffles that board and a lot of guys get recruited in January. So if you're a guy that you, you know, if you, if, the people around you legitimately think that, hey, you're a, let's say, power five guy and you're currently committed to go to a Mac school, I would hold off if you were trying to go to a power five school because everybody sees what happens and then they come back around and they try to sign kids. I We see it every year. There's always kids that had a couple offers, a couple small school offers, group of five type offers, and then end up talking to Alabama, um, South Carolina, Florida, whatever, what have you. So it's going to happen. I mean, Jordan Jefferson, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, is a great example. Did not have a bunch of big offers, waited till January. West Virginia, Kansas State, Louisville, Florida State, all swooping in last minute. So um, it's going to be a mad rush. There's going to be a strong push towards down down the stretch here. I'm really surprised. I mean, the number is going up, too. I think the first year it was, I want to say, 80 and about 68 or something like that. I had to look at it, but it's up and up both years after that, too. And just with the number of players who are going early in the NFL and with how limited teams are and who they can add with that 25 cap and then the number of transfers. And you figure, man, if you're, if you're a late player and you're a fringe guy, you're probably going to end up on a good team or maybe a better team than what I don't know, your high school reputation may offer. There's at least a chance for that just because of a need. And maybe you don't belong on one of those campuses, but you got a chance that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise, too. You can always end up at some of those other places, but maybe that risk and reward isn't quite even. And maybe if you do hold off and 
that interest isn't there and then that fallback plan isn't there, then you're out of luck. Then you're a, you know, a junior college kid who qualified and that's a, a whole nother battle in itself. So maybe it does make sense too. I can't imagine it's going to grow anymore, but we're close to like 90 and 80 as it is, but this does seem to be the trend. And something else that's going to change this year, and it's going to make it a little more interesting this, these next few weeks. We already saw it some in December, but this is the first year of February being a dead period, meaning recruits, regardless of class, cannot come up and visit a school. Um, used to be that signing day was that first Wednesday in February, and then the following weekend or the next two or three weekends after that, the schools would have all the juniors up for the next class for what they call junior days. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen that in December. That's no longer the case because February is off the table. It is a dead period from, I believe it's February 1st or February 2nd, all the way through the end of the month. And West Virginia adjusted by having their official visits that run you know, Friday until Sunday morning uh, with staggered departure times for those guys. And then staggered arrival times for the juniors for a day junior day day visit on Sunday. And we've seen some big names come through like Wyatt Millam, uh, Christian Villieu, uh, and, and others uh, in the 2021 class. And I am fully expecting that to continue for the three uh, visit weekends on in January was at 14 or 17th, 24th and 31st. So it's going to be a fight not only to get you know these kids in the 2020 guys in right before signing day, but also to try to be first or best for the 2021 kids too. Wow, a lot of dynamics to play there too. Let's um let's wrap up here with Neil Brown's other recruiting task, which is at least one assistant coaching spot. I'm not I'm not saying if there's I'm I'm hearing there's one more or anything like that, but there's one right now, and the way this carousel spins and it should start up again soon, there may be more movement. But right now, one. And I will let you in on um, a little secret here on what I'm hearing if you're ready. Go for it. Absolutely nothing. I think it may have to do with the break and the fact that you're just hey, not Mike, going to can we put this behind the Ear Sports Plus uh, paywall <laughs> if you're going to have that kind of information, please? Yeah, I think some of it has to do with the fact that the holidays and you're just not going to get a lot accomplished and guys go on breaks, whatever. But I'm also pretty confident that things are happening. Um, and I'm. To be honest with you, I'm just not in the loop on some of these things. Like I hear some things, people tell me some stuff, but it does seem like Brown keeps his circle pretty tight and pretty, um, pretty solid. So not a whole lot of stuff is leaking out, which of course infuriates me, but I respect that my job to get in. Um, but I don't hear a lot, which makes this very interesting for me because um, I wrote about this and I can talk about it again too here. Um, one, he only had to hire three replacements during his time at Troy and hire four coaches total. So three replacements and one because they went from nine assistants to 10. And there's no pattern there. Um, He's done what he thinks is right for whatever reason. And it's not because I need a receivers coach, I'll get a receivers coach. He's moved his staff around at different times. Um, He's made moves that have let him make other moves. So for example, I need a running backs coach. I'm gonna get a quarterbacks coach. I'm gonna move my, or need a running backs coach. I'm gonna get a quarterbacks coach and I'm gonna move my quarterbacks to receiver. Something like that he could do. Um, This time he needs a receivers coach. There are guys on the staff who can coach receivers, too. So it doesn't mean he's hiring a receivers coach. Um, He's also hired analysts and GAs before for his staff. So it's not necessarily someone who he's worked with or someone who's on a staff right now. Uh, He's got a pretty deep bag to dig into here. And to be honest, a lot to offer, too. We've talked about this. He can offer up to $370,000 in the salary, um, probably a two-year contract. That's pretty cool. And you're going to have a really nice group of players to work with. So I don't think he's going to be fishing in the shallow end of the the prospect pool. But I'm really intrigued to see what he does. Could it be an analyst? Could it be a GA? Could it be an assistant coach? Could it be a coordinator? Could it be someone he's worked with? Could it be someone who has university ties? Trying to find out. Can't say that I have any answers right now that are anything more solid than supposition. Well, I think we'll probably get some news or at least some some movement on a couple things because uh, was it a week and a half from now is the annual coaches convention mm-hmm. in Nashville. And as we all know, that's, that's a big time for a lot of this, all these college coaches and analysts and personnel people all in one big building, one city together. And, uh, that's when a lot of those meetings happen. So that could be, I'm not putting a timeline or anything, but that might be something to, to keep an eye on. 
I would think in two weeks that you're pretty much settled just because of the way that Nashville works out and the way that some of the recruiting stuff that you talked about has works out. But I would think that there's going to be some things that happen soon in the conference even or around the conference or with, you know, just associates of some of these assistant coaches that could open this up again, too. So in some regard, Brown's perhaps even smart to wait and let other pieces fall into place before, you know, he does something. Because if he has to make two moves, maybe the one that he needs to make or he wants to make is actually the second one. And he needs to see if that's a possibility first or if that's a, you know, a subsequent piece he has to fill in. There's a lot that goes on right here too, but um, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting talking to people that I think are around him because, um, and that's kind of what people pointed me at too, is that just look at the way he hired before um, he he's had this structure of a staff with the positions that the guys coach for three seasons now. So I think he likes that, but even within that, he's hired guys who have the capacity to coach different positions too, which means maybe he's bringing a guy in who had been a quarterback's coach, but he is a receiver's coach here. Or maybe he brings somebody in who can coach uh, no, tight ends and he moves the tight ends coach to receiver. So um, really hard to solve and to crack this one here. But um, I don't know. I haven't had a good mystery in about 365 days, so this will be a fun one. <laughs> Yeah, Mike, where's uh, where's the hourly updates, uh, 15 stories and texting and staying up all night like a year ago uh, at this time? Well, it's hard. Like, I mean, I, I knew who to call and who to talk to before. Um, and that was just eight years of relationships and people who were near the program were in the program. Um, I do not have the depth of, of relationships and contacts yet, I hope. Um, so and, and the funny thing is, like, the people I talk to are also trying to get in that loop, too. So we're all we're all like biting for the same, you know the same meat here so it's it's a little bit trickier because i'm way way behind them in line when it comes to that stuff i don't give enough money for example to get those answers or to get into the chain of uh, emails and texts or anything like that but i think that it's not a lot of news right now because there isn't but also um i really don't want to share a whole lot because i think some of the stuff i hear is maybe good and i'm not sure a whole lot of people have it right now too so i don't want to be wrong in public but i don't want to be right in public either mm. Well, we'll be we'll be eagerly awaiting within the next couple of weeks to hear who is coming in because I I agree with you I, I was I remember this when we were talking about um, assistants the first time around a year ago uh, I was like is that guy coming from Troy is that guy coming how is that going to work out and you know you ended up with what was it three quarterbacks coach or former quarterbacks coaches on the team uh, and got a lot a little bit of overlap as far as positions go but but moving around and figuring it out and seemingly working out pretty well everywhere. Hey, last one. Uh, joining Xavier Dye at USF, uh, coaching the running backs, is mm. former WVU quarterback Pat White. What do you think of that? Interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, he is right in that age range. I don't know if he, he should be able to connect with some of these kids, and I'm, I'm assuming some of these kids will know who he is and what he's done. Uh Running back, obviously, he's an amazing runner, so I think that would work. I, I think it, I, I'm curious about you know the specifics, the techniques, how well that how well he knows that because I believe he's he's been coaching, so he's not. This is not something out of the blue, but I believe he's been coaching quarterbacks coaches at, at his previous stops. I believe he was at Alcorn State and a couple other places, and and was working with the quarterbacks, understandably, um, but. UCF, that might bring up some bad memories for him, too. UCF or USF? USF. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I, did I say UCF? Yeah, I was wondering I if I got it wrong or if you got it wrong, because typically I'm the one who's wrong on these things, but not you there. Uh, also, um, it's a geographically, it's pretty cool, too, because, one, uh, a lot of those kids that he's going to visit, I wonder if they actually played him in the video game, you know? <laughs> um, like, those guys are a little bit older right now, so I'm not sure if they, because that was like a wow thing with Pat White for a long time, is that you played with White and Slate in NCAA because they were off the charts. Um, these guys probably haven't played that video game ever before, too, but he's still a big, big deal in that part of the country, and that part of Alabama has got some talent, too, that you can get in there and get. And um, For USF, that makes some sense, too. And um, I'll tell you what, if you had told me through my experiences interviewing Pat White, that he would be a major college assistant coach and a good recruiter, I would have been like, what happened? Because he was a really quiet guy with the media, and even his teammates said that he was kind of shy. Not shy, but just introverted and very businesslike. But that businesslike thing has probably served him very well, and that guy knows offense and he knows football. So um, not at all surprised in that regard. So best of luck to him, I would guess. You had something. 
No, I did, I was going to, I guess we'll go down this road. I was going to ask you because somebody asked it on the board. Uh, this was, so this is not my question. I don't want to steal it from him, but a one day Pat White assistant coach at West Virginia. Who knows? Um, I didn't think that would be a, for his first job. I'm not sure that would have been good for him because if he's learning on the job here, that's going to be used to grade him right away um, about, oh, he's not quite good enough or anything like that. And it takes time. It's a good spot for him, too. Like, I'm not I'm, I'm not sure what they have coming back or how loaded their offense is, whatever, but, like, that's going to have a pretty good offensive staff, and he's going to get to learn that position, too. If he's coaching quarterbacks at West Virginia for his first FBS job, that's a heck of a weight on his shoulders. So I, I like this a lot for him. I wouldn't be surprised if he's here in the future, but I like the fact that it's not his first major Division One FBS job. I didn't know if he was, uh, you know, there was obviously some some moments there where he had some comments, some thoughts on how things went down and some people around town. I didn't know if that might disqualify him or or if he would even be interested in coming back. Well, that probably gets him an interview, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that he didn't like the old staff is probably probably good to get him elevated, too. But yeah. uh, he's coached two years, by the way, two different quarterbacks, and both of them were the conference player of the year. So he knows what he's doing. He knows how to move the ball. Yeah. And he was in the Celebration Bowl in back-to-back years, too. So I think it's the name of the game, right? The Celebration Bowl? I have no idea. What was that before? I need to know what it was in the heyday, in the good day, the good old days. I think it's just that conference. The conference winner goes there. I'm, I'm out of my league here now, but I'm pretty sure that it's the Celebration Bowl is what it's called. Oh, uh, yeah, there it is. It's it's only about five years old. It, it Before the Celebration Bowl, it was the Air Force Reserve Bowl. <sighs> I need notes. I got to come to these things prepared. Yeah. Next time I get my New Year's resolution, come to the podcast prepared <laughs> instead of winging it. All right. Well, we've gone uh, over time as usual, or maybe, you know what? Maybe let's say we ended 10 minutes early, but uh, yeah. that's all the time we have. So um, again, happy new year. Welcome back. We will be back here uh, after the game tomorrow afternoon. How about that? We're going to try to do these post game pods for, the decently timed basketball game. So maybe not the 8 p.m. and 9 p.m. starts, but hey, 4 p.m. on a Saturday with a whole lot on the line. Seems like a good time to boot this, right? Absolutely. I am ready and raring to go to complain about the refs. Just ready. I'm ready. Two words. John Higgins. Yeah, no way. Is that... It has to happen. We haven't seen oh, okay. I thought you already had the insight on who was going to be rough in that game. No, they don't release that until tomorrow. So maybe okay. if I can get it. Uh, I'll, I'll put the uh, the Higgins from Magnum PI picture up on Twitter if that is the case. It's a bad <laughs> thing. But that is all for this time. I'll see you next time for 24-7 Sports. I'm Mike Casaza. And I'm Chris Anderson. Talk to you later.